Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. The scripture for today's teaching is Psalm 63, 1 through 8. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate, you, meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. This is the word of God to us. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here at Frontline. If we've not had a chance to meet, uh, I'd love to meet you after the service. It's good to be with you today. Uh, hey, just a couple of things before we jump in. One of the things that uh, we do on Sundays is we're stepping into a place where we get to be restoried together. And what I mean by that is that there's a lot of stories that are being told to us throughout the week. And, uh, and, and on Sundays, it's, we call it the Lord's Day. It's a day where we get to gather together, and a lot of those narratives that we've been telling ourselves or hearing throughout the week, uh, we actually get a chance to be told a better, truer story about Jesus and about his kingdom. And uh, one of the things that we do is we try to structure our service with what we call liturgy, so that time where we just confessed our sin together and then received the assurance together. Uh, we don't do that because that's like a denominational thing for us or because we think that that's cool or whatever. We do that because throughout church history, churches for hundreds and hundreds of years have had these moments where they would recite prayers together and they would confess sins together. And here's, here's why I think that matters. Like uh, in our world, the story that's told is that actually there is no such thing as sin which is kind of a perplexing thing to think about, well, how do we understand evil and how do we understand what we intuitively morally know is wrong? And, but we're told like, you do you and you live into your full potential and you express yourself, the world is your canvas. And if anybody tries to say that you're doing something that's sinful, well, they're repressive and they're hateful and they're hurting you, right? So we don't have a cultural concept of sin, uh, even though we intuitively carry around shame from our sin. And then simultaneously what our culture does is when you do transgress some of the agreed upon things in culture that we have classified as wrong, then we cancel you and we push you out of the community and you're no longer welcomed. You're no, there's no pathway for forgiveness to ever happen or there's no pathway for reconciliation to occur. And so what's happening, think about the better story that's happening in the church is we're actually gathering together and we're not lying to ourselves. We're saying, hey, before God and before you, like we've sinned. We've done things that are wrong. We have not loved God or our neighbors with our whole heart. We have not done the things that we were supposed to do and we have done things that we were not supposed to do. We're brought low in our confession. And then think about this, something that the world can't offer us is in that moment of being brought low in our sin, 
that the kindness of our Father, he lifts our head up. And he says, yeah, but you're loved and you're forgiven. And in Christ, here's your real identity and this is what's really true of you. And there's actually a pathway of repentance. There's a pathway of reconciliation. There's a chance to come in and experience true forgiveness and community. So that's why we do what we do is like not because we think it's cool or because of some denominational thing. It's we're being restoried. And that's the case in all of our liturgies. The way we talk about uh, the word of God as we sing songs together, as we pray for our world. I mean, these are things that are, we're learning and rehearsing Jesus and his kingdom again and again. Amen? So I just want to offer that to you. Like, that's why we do what we do. And if you've got more questions, man, we're not afraid of questions. We don't have all the answers, but we'd love to uh, wrestle and process all those questions with you. Hey, one, one, uh, one other thing real quickly is uh, my good friend, Ben Hill, the pastor of Shawnee, lead pastor of Frontline Shawnee. I just said you're the pastor of Shawnee, like the whole city. Um, he could be, but he's not. He's the lead pastor of Frontline Shawnee. Wave, wave your hands so everybody can see you. Man, I love you, dude. It's good to have you with us today. Uh, his team gave him the day off, so he's with us today, and uh, you're, you're a good pastor and a good friend, and love, love your congregation, love that we get to do it together. Uh, next week, we start the book of Jude, uh, excited for that series, but today we're going to lean into something that I think is, is uh, just pastorally really relevant right now for us. So in light of that, let me pray for us, and while I'm praying, find Psalm 63 if you have a Bible. Father, we want to thank you for the gift that it is to gather Thank you for the gift that it is to sit under the word and the gift that it is to sing songs and rehearse the story. And I I pray today, God, that wherever we might find ourselves, even if it's in a place that we don't fully understand or get, I pray that your presence would come breaking through. I pray that wherever, uh, if we find ourselves in a place of darkness or if we've crawled deep into a cave or if we just don't know where we are, God, we pray that you would meet us with your love today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to read this mission statement of a really well-known institution to you and see if you can identify it. Some of you will know this. Some of you may have never heard of this before. Here's the, uh, the, the mission statement. To be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. This is a really well-known historic institution And you can tell by the mission statement that it's a learning institution. So you might think seminary, but actually wasn't a seminary. It was a university that employed exclusively Christian professors that had a strong emphasis on character formation in the students and actually had uh, a, a really strong emphasis on equipping ministers to share the good news of Jesus Christ in the world. And every diploma was stamped with this, uh, this, uh, this Latin phrase, and I think we've got a photo of it here, this Latin phrase says, truth for Christ and the church. And so if you may notice from this, uh, this institution is none other than Harvard University. How fascinating. Harvard University founded in 1636, and this was the main mission that they had. Now, what's even more fascinating about that is about 80 years after, uh, a group of New England pastors got together and they were bemoaning how uh, Harvard had slipped into secularization. And so as a response to some of the drift that they were seeing happen in Harvard, they started, guess what? Yale University. So both Harvard and Yale, these institutions that are kind of historic in our country, were actually founded by Christians to specifically develop Christians around spiritual formation. What happened to Harvard and what happened to Yale? 
And I'm not commenting on, you know, their level of education or anything like that. I'm just asking what happened that they had that mission and it might come as a surprise and a shock to you to know where they are today. Well, what happened is just very simply what we might call drift. And here's the thing about drift is it's super duper slow, right? But the the thing about drift that's even more crazy is that it's not just restrictive to institutions or universities or organizations. The thing about drift is that it's actually the natural gravitational pull of every single thing in your life and in my life. So think about this. Drift from everything from your body to your bank account, to your home, to your relationships, all has this gravitational pull away from order into chaos, away from health into unhealth. Like you don't just continue to uh, stay up late every night eating pizza, watching Netflix, and do that for years and years and years and be like, how did I get this way? How come I don't have a six-pack? Like, we, we understand that there's been a level of decisions and things that have been done over a course of time that got us to where we might find ourselves. I, I've got a good friend who is a pastor in North Carolina in a place called Moorhead City, and it's a really crazy place. I get to go visit him this summer, but it's basically like, uh, he describes it as Hillbillyville meets Orange County. And so they'll, like, go out, and they're, like, shooting animals, and also, like, they've got this cool, hip, you know, surfer vibe in the city. And he, he spends a lot of time on the coast. He spends a lot of time spearfishing and free diving and spends a lot of his free time out on boats and he has for his whole life. And he told me something that was so interesting. He said, the thing about boats is like, this happens all the time. People will not anchor their boat down or they'll forget to anchor their boat down. And he said, I've never one time, never one time have I heard a story of a boat that didn't get anchored down that drifted into a really cool place like a really beautiful place. Like you don't hear about boats drifting into lagoons that are, you know, pristine, or you don't hear about boats drifting into islands with buried treasure. It just doesn't happen. He said every time the boats that drift end up breaking apart because they drift into reefs or rocks and they get busted up and destroyed. That I never hear a story of a, of a boat drifting into health. It always is actually to its own detriment. And I can look at my own life and say, yeah, I get that. I get how that works. Like when you and I slowly lift up the anchor and just kind of let ourselves float in whatever is floating around, we, we actually don't drift into greater maturity. We don't drift into, drift into greater health. We actually drift the opposite direction. So I think this is something that you both understand and because of the last two years as a culture, where we've come from, what we've experienced, this reality of the slow drift is a real threat to you and I, isn't it? Maybe you've been drifting, and I think a lot of us have been, myself included. And I think also, even if you're not drifting, you see it play out in a number of different levels. So let me just give you a few things to think about on where we have drifted as a people. The first is there's been a personal drift into apathy and isolation and disillusionment. I think the disruption over the last two years has actually had a dramatic effect on us personally. Some of us have been uh, responded with more health, but, but often what I've found is that when pressures of life hit or when things come at you that were unexpected, it doesn't create unhealth. It just reveals whatever unhealth was already there. Does that make sense? It's not like the pressure causes the, the fissures and the cracks. They just expose what cracks and fissures were already there and then chasms end up getting exposed. And I think the last two years in many ways has been that where some of us are waking up today and we're actually finding ourselves in a bit of apathy and a bit of disillusionment about our relationship with God or friendships or the church. There's a bit of uh, isolation where we're kind of, kind of siloing off and making decisions 
ourselves. I think this is real for a lot of us. This is where we find ourselves. Number two, I think the second area where we're seeing drift is not just on a personal level, but on a communal level. And this is the communal drift into forgetfulness. And here's what I mean. I'm talking about the church's, uh, so, uh, the, the, the church's swiftness to forget the source of her greatest need. So think about the needs that you and I have. We have a lot of needs. And in fact, a lot of us came in with a palpable sense of the need that we have. Maybe, it's a, maybe we're carrying uh, financial problems into the room with us. Or maybe it's relational problems. Or maybe we've got marital problems that we're facing. Or maybe it's addictions that are kind of humming in the background and we're either aware of that or we're not aware of that. Or maybe it's job stress or whatever it might be for you. I don't know what your thing is that you're carrying, but we all have some problems and we're all carrying those problems in this room with us. And often as Christians, as the church, we can start to think that if I could just get this resolved, if I could just get that adjusted, if I could get this problem in my life fixed, then everything else would be fixed and fine. But the reality, friends, is that actually that's not our greatest need. Our greatest need as the church is not to address those problems as important as they may be. Our greatest need is for more of the presence of God in our life. Our greatest need is for God. Like you can have financial problems, you can have marital problems, you can have relationship problems, but what you need is not for those things to get adjusted and fixed. You need God. I need God. And I am so quick to forget that that's the greatest need and I drift into all these other felt needs that I have. The third area where I think there's been drift is on a cultural level, and this is the drift into secularization and chaos. And I think you sense this or feel this, even if you don't have words for it, that on two levels, I see our culture drifting right now. The first is there's an obvious drift as our culture is rapidly moving more and more away from Christianity as a relevant and helpful option, that there's a growing hostility and animosity towards the church that is somewhat new for many of us. And I just think that many of us are not quite prepared or resilient enough to know how we can stand in fidelity to Jesus in a culture that's drifting in the opposite direction. And I think that that's why we're seeing so many deconversion stories and so many people that are actually abandoning and walking away from the faith. And I'm not pointing the finger. I'm not saying that those are bad people. I'm saying, I get it, that that's actually in you and it's in me. And that's, there's, a, there's a pull towards drift in that way. It's estimated that by the year 2050, 35 million young people that were raised in Christian homes will actually disaffiliate with Christianity, which is more than 1 million per year. I think that comes from the Barna Research Group, David Kinneman and those people there. So there's a, there's a drift culturally away from Christianity as a viable option for life and meaning. But I actually think that there's an even broader drift that even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you've, you, you're able to spot and see. There's a drift into chaos. You don't have to be religious to see this, but we're at an all-time low level of trust in virtually every institution that America has offered us whether it's the university or government or police or news media or churches or you name it, whatever it is, there's an all-time low level of trust of any sort of external authority other than myself. I recently read a really brilliant article uh, by uh, an atheist by the name of Jonathan Haidt. He is a brilliant writer, has a lot of good books out. He posted this article in The Atlantic and the title caught my eye, Why the Past 10 Years of American Life have been uniquely stupid. 
And it's like, if you laugh, it's because you're like, it has been kind of stupid, right? It feels like, what are we doing? Have we lost our collective minds? And his opinion is, yeah, I think we actually have. And here's what's going on. And the article is fantastic. I highly recommend it. This is from a non-religious perspective. But at the very end, it doesn't like end in a, it doesn't leave you with warm fuzzies after you read it. Here's how he kind of ends it. If we do not make major changes soon, then our institutions, our political system, and our society may collapse during the next major war, pandemic, financial meltdown, or constitutional crisis. Those are big words from a very smart person. Here's my point, is that no matter where you are, no matter what you look out and see, whether it's in your own life personally or in the church or culturally, there's the struggle of the slow drift. There's the struggle of the slow drift. In fact, I would say that right now, for many of us, things are really bleak and things are really dark and things are really hard. And that's profoundly good news. Now you may be like, how is that good news? Well, here's why. If you'll allow me to mix my metaphors for just a minute, when the church drifts into the wilderness, powerful things happen in the wilderness. When the church drifts into the driest, most desperate, most dark place, that's historically when God shows up in powerful ways. That actually when things feel dark, when things feel bleak, when things feel hopeless, it's like that song that we sing sometimes on Sundays. God loves to make gardens out of graves, right? He loves to make uh, highways out of seas. Like he does all these powerful things with what feels so dark and so helpless. And so whether it's you personally, whether you're sitting here saying, I'm in a dark spot, I'm in a wilderness spot, I don't even know where, I've crawled into some dark cave, man, or it's like culturally looking out and seeing what's happening, this is profoundly good news because God loves to meet people in those places. And in fact, this is the story of Psalm 63. So with that background in mind, let's jump in and look at this powerful text. Look at verse one. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Now, often what we envision with this text, if I just pause right here, is that David, the writer of the psalm, is overwhelmed with affection and love for God. That there's this palpable sense of the presence of God that David has set an alarm for Monday morning, but his alarm went off 15 minutes early and he woke up wide awake, not sleepy at all, full of joy, aware of God's presence. He opened up his Torah, and it's like just flooded with the Holy Spirit. So he's in his office, and he's like, man, I just, I need to pause and write this stuff down. My heart is full. I'm alive to God, and I just want to celebrate God. In other words, I think that we often romanticize this, forgetting the context of the psalm. And we do this to a lot of psalms. Another famous psalm that we kind of uh, romanticize and turn into a cute version of a psalm is Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for, for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And we turn this into a piece of art that you might sell at Hobby Lobby. I found this online and I thought, this is too good to not share, right? And I'm not knocking Benny Hinn. That's another sermon for another day. Listen, here's the thing about this. Like, here's this strong buck overlooking this babbling brook. And we think, like, this is what we do to this psalm. This is cute. Psalm 42 is not cute. 
Psalm 42 is about a dying deer who, if it doesn't get to water, is going to drop dead. Psalm 42 is about desperation for God. Psalm 63, we forget what's actually happening in David's life. He's not in an ivory tower. He's not in his office. He's not overwhelmed with the tangible, palpable presence of God. Here's what's happening in David's life when he writes it. Look at your Bibles and look at at the very top before you get to verse 1. There's a heading at Psalm 63 that tells you a little bit about this psalm. And here's what it says. It says, a psalm of David when he was in the what? In the wilderness of Judea, of, Ju- of Judah. He's in the wilderness of Judah as he's writing this psalm. Now think about this for just a minute. We, we don't know exactly what's going on in his life because David was in the wilderness a lot. So there's one of two options. Either this is a moment in his life where he escapes the city uh, because a man by the name of King Saul is out to kill him, who happens to be his father-in-law. We often forget that. And so he's running from his father-in-law. There's lies being told about him. He's cut off from the covenant community, and he's hiding in the wilderness for fear of losing his life. He's sleeping in caves so that Saul doesn't find him. Or option two, this is an event in David's life when he's doing the same exact things because this time it's his son Absalom that's trying to kill him. So it's either his father-in-law or his own son And he's cut off from community. He has no friends. There's lies being told about him. He's all alone. He's in the wilderness. He's in a cave of darkness. And it's in the place of the wilderness that David pens these words in Psalm 63. That matters. Eugene Peterson, in his great book, Leap Over a Wall, says this. David didn't start out in the wilderness, and he didn't end up in the wilderness. But he did spend some highly significant years in the wilderness. Everybody, at least Everybody who has anything to do with God spends time in the wilderness. So it's important to know what can take place there. And that's what we're talking about. Whether you drift there by your own doing or you're put there not by your own doing, this is often a place that the people of God find themselves in, this metaphor of the wilderness. So with that being said, I want to just talk about the wilderness as a painful gift and just make a few observations as we work through this text. So here's the first thing that I want you to see, that this is a gift, the wilderness. This is a gift that you often don't choose. And I would maybe even say very rarely do you choose. I've never actually met anybody that chose the wilderness. This is often a gift that you don't choose. Like David didn't want this for himself. This wasn't his plan. This wasn't something that David was like, what's best next? Head to the wilderness. He's not out there taking Instagram photos of the wilderness. He does not want to be there. He's there by necessity. He's there because he's running for his life. He doesn't want to be there. And here's the crazy part. God could have stopped it, but he didn't. And here David is, and he's in the wilderness. We rarely choose the wilderness. Often the wilderness is thrust upon you. Friends, even if you've been in a slow drift, It's often that slow drift where you don't think it's going to take you there. And then you wake up one day and you're like, man, where am I? I, I'm, I'm in a place of apathy. I'm in a place of isolation. I'm in a place of darkness. I'm in the wilderness. So this is a gift that you often don't choose. Second thing, this is a gift that strips you of everything else. I don't know if you found this to be true, but in my life, some of the greatest barriers to experiencing the true presence of God are not because of bad things that exist in my life as much as they are because of the good things that exist. What I mean is that there's a level of attachment that I have with things. There's a level of security 
or comfort that certain things bring me. And those attachments, comforts, and securities can often uh, make me numb to my greatest need for the presence of God. Like, why would I need God? Because I've got Amazon one-day shipping. And, and, and I, I, we laugh, but it's like, why, why do I need God? Because I, like, if things get really hard, I can just take a week off and go on vacation. Uh, why do I need God? Because if I feel something that's really scary, then I can just check out or numb out or whatever. And I think often what it is is there's all of these good things that we're surrounded with that keep us from seeing what's really going on. I was thinking about the movie Wall-E. Any, any people out there seen Wall-E, the Disney Pixar films out in 2008? Uh, I'm gonna spoil it for you if you've not seen it. Some of you are like, no, don't, I, we're gonna rent it tonight. Oh, you're gonna go to Blockbuster tonight and rent Wall-E, right? Um, here's what the movie's about if you don't know. It's sort of interesting. It's like a dystopian film uh, for kids about the dangers of technology and about the dangers of where probably our culture's head is fascinating. And at the very end of the movie, there's like these, these people who have been so inundated with the screen in front of them and all, the, all this technology that they're like in these chairs that move around. They don't even have to walk anymore. And every need they have is just with a click of a button. And it ends up changing their skeletal structure where they, can't, they don't even have the physical strength to walk anymore. And there's all this crazy stuff going on around them that's like threatening the existence of humanity and they're too numbed out to even see it. And I just see that movie and I'm like, yeah, that's, I, I get that. I understand what that's like. And here's my point. What happens in the wilderness is that all of that gets stripped from you. And maybe not physically taken from you, but they don't work anymore. Like the attachments start to get taken off, the comforts don't work. Everything gets taken from you. And here's what happens. In the wilderness, you're all alone and you're forced to either deal with God or not. To either face God with your full real self or not. And often what happens to people in the wilderness is one of two different realities. Either they head to the place of despair and anger and bitterness and resentment, or they head to the place of desperation for God. They head to the place of vulnerability. They head to the place of repentance and crying out to God to move on their life. My, my, my point is this, that it's a gift that we often don't choose, but it's a gift that, that takes all the stuff away so that there we are alone with God and we're either gonna deal with him or we're not. The third thing I want you to see is that in the wilderness, refuge becomes a person, not a place. Refuge becomes a person, not a place. This is really fascinating, both in the ancient Near Eastern context and also in biblical uh, terminology in the Old Testament, the word refuge literally was a geographical place. So if you were a criminal or if you'd done something and needed to have refuge, you would escape to a physical city, often it was a city, or you'd escape to a place and there you could have refuge. You, you would be like untouchable in a sense and you could live out your days if needed. So refuge, these city refuges were actually a place where you would run and you would hide for protection. But something happens with this word that's really fascinating, specifically in the Psalms and specifically in David's story is the word refuge dramatically changes its meaning and it no longer refers to a place. Now it's referring to a person. Listen to these various Psalms and, and, and just hear what's happening with this word. Psalm 2, verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's not a city, it's a person. When you don't have a place to go to, you have a person to go to. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. 
Let them ever sing for joy, Psalm 511. Here's another one, Psalm 7, verse 1. Oh, Lord, my God, in you I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Psalm 11, verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. We could keep going and going and going. 37 times in the Psalms, this word refuge is used, and never one time does it refer to a place. It always refers to a person. So when you're stripped, all those attachments, all those comforts, all those securities come ripping off of you and you're there all alone, forced to deal with God and forced to deal with your real self, refuge is found in a person, not in a place. That's one of the gifts of the wilderness. Number four, in the wilderness, transformation happens. In the wilderness, and this is the best news, transformation actually occurs. I I don't know if anybody has captured the way that this wilderness experience can change a person or suffering can change a person as well as Gene Edwards. If you've never read A Tale of Three Kings, I highly recommend it. It's a very short read, but it's one of the most influential books on my life personally that I've ever read. And listen to what he says in one section. It's about the life of David. He said, he had less now than when he was a shepherd. For now he had no lyre, no son, not even the company of sheep. The memories of the court had faded. David's greatest ambition now reached no higher than a shepherd's staff. Everything was being crushed out of him. He sang a great deal and he matched each note with a tear. And then look at this line, this is so powerful. How strange is it not what suffering begets? There in those caves, drowned in the sorrow of his song and in the song of his sorrow, David became the greatest hymn writer and the greatest comforter of broken hearts this world shall ever know. How strange is it not what suffering begets? See, it's often in those dark places, those times of your life where you're feeling like everything is getting crushed out of you, where your ambitions get so low that it's almost laughable. You're like, I don't even have an ambition other than just to survive. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in the place where you're like, my ambition, like for me, as a, my ambition is to stay married and be a Christian until I die. Have you ever been where you're like, I just want to survive this week? Like, those are the moments, friends, when the presence of God is so dramatically at work in your life that you will look back on those times and go, that's where God met me. It's not, it's not when things are great. It's not when everything is going according to plan. It's when things are hard. Friends, Nelson Mandela spent 27 years in prison and nobody reads his autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom, because Mandela lived a pain-free life. We read it and we're fascinated by it and we're moved by it because something about his tragedy, his hardship, his pain did something to him and changed him. Nobody reads letters from a Birmingham jail because Dr. King lived a life that was devoid of wilderness experiences. We read those things because we see it's in those hard places that we grow and God actually does a deeper work. Here's what I found in times of intense suffering or in those wilderness moments. It's almost like, oh, this is what it looks like to be the most real with God that I've ever been. Like I've been lying to him, I think, or putting on a facade this whole time and the wilderness just blows that up and you get to really deal with him and something who you really are comes out. And you get to encounter the presence of God in a unique way. And that's why, because of David's experience here, that when you and I are having a hard time and we muster the faith and the courage to open up our Bibles, where's the number one place that most Christians go in times of suffering? It's the Psalms, right? You're not going to like Exodus 
or whatever. And Exodus is amazing. You're, you're going to the Psalms because you're like, I know a man who struggled and he met God and God changed him. And I, I need that, right? Friends, that's what's happening to you. So let me say it pastorally. Like, I don't know what your wilderness is. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if it's a death of a dream, if it's unrealized desires, if it's painful stuff going on in your family or at work or whatever. I don't know what yours is, but I know that you and I have them often, maybe more often than we'd like. And what I want you to know is, yes, it's painful. Yes, it can be isolating. Yes, it can be terrifying. But God is working in you. Don't resist it. Don't fight it. He is working in you. So what do you do when you're in the wilderness? That leads me to the fifth thing here. In the wilderness, the invitation is to seek God's presence. I want you to notice David's posture in Psalm 63 and notice in the wilderness what he chose to do. Look at the action that's used in these words. Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So what does he do? So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Notice this. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Did you notice the action that's used? David is earnestly seeking. He's looking upon God and his glory, not his problems. His lips are praising God. He's blessing God. He's lifting up his hands. His mouth is praising God with joyful lips. He remembers God on his bed. He wakes up throughout the watches of the night, to remember and meditate on God. He sings for joy. His soul is actively clinging to God. Friends, I I wanna say this, and this is the hardest thing to remember when you're in a wilderness season. There's actually something for you and I to do, and that's to seek God out. It's to call out for his presence. It's to ask for him to come and meet you and to renew you and to revive you and to pour more of his Holy Spirit in you and in the life of our church. There's something to be done in the wilderness. You don't just sit and you wait. It's an active posture of waiting for the presence of God, right? I love these words of A.W. Tozer. Let this sink deep into your head and heart. He says, put yourself in the way of the blessing." Put yourself in the way of the blessing. It is a mistake to look for grace to visit us as a kind of benign magic or to expect God's help to come as a windfall apart from conditions known and met. There are plainly marked paths which lead straight to the green pastures. Let us walk in them. To desire revival, for instance, and at the same time to neglect prayer and devotion is to wish one way and walk another you say, what does it look like to put yourself in the way of the blessing? Well, there's these ancient practices. Pastor Sean talked about three of them last week. He talked about the word of God. He talked about 
community, the people of God. He talked about the table of the Lord, the body and blood of Jesus that was broken and shed for us. These are just some of these ancient pathways that we return to again and again to put ourselves in the way of the blessing. This is not about earning grace. This is not about earning God's love and favor. This is about realizing that it's a free gift and there's ways throughout history that the people of God have put themselves underneath that free gift to receive it. There's ways like opening up your Bible or getting together in community and being vulnerable about what's really going on in your soul and God meets you there. He meets you with his grace. He meets you with his love. And that leads me to the last thing that I want you to see in the wilderness, and this is maybe the most important. God is actually seeking you. God is actually seeking you, right? Here's the thing about David's story that David didn't know what was going on as it was unfolding. We live with the beginning, the middle, and the end, and seeing all of it kind of wrapped up. And so we can see that, yeah, David did spend some time in the wilderness, but he didn't live there forever. He eventually was brought out of the wilderness, and we know how his life turned out. The struggle for you and I is that we know the beginning of our story, and we're currently right smack dab in the middle of it. And yes, we know the ending that Revelation 21 has for us, but we don't know our personal ending, Will I end well? Will I stay faithful to Jesus till I die? What will happen in this situation that I'm up against? What will happen in this struggle that I have? Will my marriage work out? Will will I ever get married? Uh, Will my singleness be one that's faithful to Jesus? On and on and on. We don't know the answer to those questions, friends. We're in the middle of our story, and he actually is the author that has the beginning and the middle and the end. And so think about David's trajectory in his story. Yes, he spent significant time in the wilderness, but eventually that part of his story ended and David made, out, out, he made his way out of the wilderness into a palace. David goes from sitting into a cave to sitting on a throne. He goes from a place of weakness and humiliation to a place of strength and honor. But there's another David, a son of David. Matthew 1.1 calls Jesus the son of David and his story, his trajectory was very, very different than David's. David went from the wilderness to a palace, but Jesus left his heavenly palace to enter into the wilderness and literally physically lived in Egypt for a couple years as a baby and then spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the enemy. David went from sitting in a cave to sitting on a throne. Jesus, because of his great love, went from sitting on a throne to his body being laid in a cave after dying on a cross for us. David went from the palace of weakness, went from the place of weakness and humiliation to the place of strength. And yet Jesus, he went from the place of strength and honor to the place of weakness and humiliation. Why? Why would he do that? Well, Luke 19.10, his words to us, he said, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And what a dignifying way for God to talk about humanity, lost. Have you ever lost something you love? A wallet? keys to your car. That's not saying they're bad things. They're saying they're desired things and you don't have them. You ever lost a child? Freak out? It's not saying the child's bad for getting lost. It's saying that's a desired child and I want the child back. Friends, this is not just an evangelistic verse for people who are not yet Christians. There are times when even Christians get lost. We're confused. We don't know where to go. We're in a space that's so, which way's right? And friends, if you're in that space today, Jesus came to seek you and save you. He's actually searching for you. And the wilderness is him seeking you out, trying to strip you of everything else, 
get your attention so that he can save you. So the gospel is not, hey, give your life to Jesus as much as it's Jesus gave his life for you. It's not, hey, make promises to God and keep them. It's God has made promises to you and he will be faithful. It's not go find passion for God. It's God's passion for you is so great that he sent his son to live, die, and rise for you. It's not go get a new heart. It's in love. He comes to you when your heart is dead and he makes it alive and he begins to transform it. 